Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I want to begin by thanking some of our fellow saloners who have recently made contributions to help offset some of our monthly expenses here in the salon. And these nice people are Owen H., Auden H., Adam B., Floris M., and another anonymous Bitcoin donor. Whomever you are, I thank you and all of our other supporters. I thank you all from the bottom of my heart. And for those who have been uh, warning me away from Bitcoin, well, I, I hear you, but there's a lot of activity now taking place in what I choose to call the Bitcoin aftermarket, which is uh, beginning to service businesses. While uh, we all know that the feds took down uh, Silk Road, of course it only took a couple of days for it to get back online in the deep web, but we uh, also have now learned that the uh, government is going to convert that huge cache of bitcoins that they stole in their raid uh, of uh, Silk Road, and they're going to convert it into U.S. dollars. So, in a sense, the uh, U.S. government has already begun using bitcoin itself. On top of that, I've also uh, read that the porn industry has begun accepting Bitcoin. Plus, there are now uh, at least two Las Vegas casinos that are accepting it. So, uh, now that the U.S. government, the porn industry, and Las Vegas are all on the Bitcoin bandwagon, I, uh, <laughs> I have a hunch that Bitcoin is here to stay. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Now, in response to some comments that have been posted and emails that I've received... I'm going to play uh, another one of the Terrence McKenna workshop recordings that we've been listening to. In, uh, in fact, this is the last session from that workshop that I'll be playing. It is, in fact, the Sunday morning wrap-up where Terrence would cover anything that the participants brought up. And for anyone who is new to the world of McKenna, this will uh, give you a good idea, I think, of what a fascinating mind Terence McKenna had in order to be able to answer such a wide range of questions with detailed and well-thought-out answers without first having to uh, even look at any notes or other materials. Uh, this is all ad-lib, as were almost all of his talks. And just one little tip here for the newcomers to Terence McKenna. When he speaks uh, about something being imminent, uh, we should always keep in mind the fact that he quite often thought and spoke about things in a geological sense of time. And so something imminent for him could easily be <laughs> maybe a thousand years in the future. So uh, don't be too hard on him uh, thinking that he missed his predictions, because he may still be right. Uh, it just may take a few more millennia to get there. <laughs> so uh, let's now join Terrence McKenna and a small group of workshop attendees for a Sunday morning wrap-up session that took place during the month of May in 1990. What I thought we would do this morning, because these things are so brief, is again return to the form of going around in the circle. And this time it's your last chance to ask a question, make a statement, voice a complaint, whatever you want to do. But just to try and, if there, in other words, it's loose ends time, as rapidly as we can to tie up loose ends, things people didn't understand, people, th things, uh, 
people feel they need to hear more about that sort of thing. And why don't we just start as we did before on this side and go around. I'd like to hear a more satisfactory explanation of what archaic revival means. I, I haven't got it straightened out. I suspect it means a return to a more stable state when there's too much chaos in the present. And I'm sure that's not what you mean. Well, that's partially what it is. It's based on the idea that when societies get into trouble, an, an unconscious response seems to be they search back through their own history to find a model that they can revivify or revitalize. The strongest example in our own history was when the medieval world broke apart and didn't make any sense anymore. The new middle class went back to classicism, to the Greeks and the Romans, to Roman law, Greek philosophy, and uh, Greco-Roman architecture and mechanics and that sort of thing, and created classicism. Classicism was invented in the 14th century. But our problems are deeper than this. We can't go back to ancient Rome or ancient Egypt or something like that and, and expect to have real answers. Uh, we have to go back further to prehistory, to this archaic state. And there, in, in partnership, in genderless, uh, self-organizing society, we begin to see the kinds of models that we have to somehow recreate in the modern world. Obviously, we can't in the modern world become mushroom-eating, nomadic pastoralists. But we can study that approach to reality to try and learn from it how you live in equilibrium. That's the key thing that the archaic world knew that we don't know. How do you live in equilibrium uh, so that your children may live in equilibrium? Because otherwise you get a cycle started that's going to shove somebody over the cliff. And that somebody, in, in the present case, is either ourselves, our children, or their children. It's no further away in time than that. So the archaic revival is the idea that all of the... And, and I see the whole of the 20th century, you know, the discovery of the unconscious by Freud and Jung, the dissolving of the... Uh, naturalistic image at the hands of the cubists, the probing of the dream state by the surrealists, the exploration of mass ritual by the fascists. I mean, it wasn't all good, this stuff. But what all these things had in common was they were a, a, a return, an appeal to a level of the mass psyche that had been ignored and denied for a long, long time. The LSD taking of the 60s it was the same kind of thing. And, the, and, you know, I'm very... I come out pretty strongly from McLuhan in the idea that uh, as the emphasis, uh, uh, as the ratios of the mix of media in a society changes, the 
sensory ratios and values of the society change. And we're living in a post-literate, post-linear kind of world now where a whole different set of assumptions make sense. And they're archaic assumptions. You know, the archaic world was a non-linear, pre-literate, audial, all-at-once kind of world. And the fact that our sensory ratios have shifted back in that direction makes us very sympathetic, very susceptible to this re-archaicization that wants to go on. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I guess the ultimate uh, psilocybin question is: is you, you, Can you envision, Terence, in, in your wildest imagination, that we as a society, instead of individuals taking <coughs> mushrooms and, and, and gaining some enlightenment, that, that we will ever be able to do it in an organized mass way? Can, can, do you have that vision? You mean that someday it will be legal? Legal and encouraged, you know, the mass taking of Well, obviously it would take a total revolution. Uh, the current thinking is that the big revolutions in the world have to do with the internal contradictions of Marxist-Leninism. But it may actually be that Marxist-Leninism was a kind of partner in a codependent relationship with consumer capitalism. And maybe revolution is just going to become something that everybody is into. God knows, we could use a perestroika. I mean, we too are ruled by constipated, lying bureaucrats who, you know, what what are the statistics that uh, 97% of all incumbents are re-elected, that there is less turnover in the uh, United States Congress than there was in the higher echelons of the Communist Party of East Germany until the wall came down. I mean, we love to congratulate ourselves on the forward-leaning liberal society that we live in, and the truth is, you know, it's a bunch of rattlesnake-handling fundamentalists that are much closer to Stalin than they are to FDR or anybody else like that. Still, I I think that the culture crisis is going to become so intense and the world is going to become so weird, as we saw on the graph last night. Novelty is going to intensify and intensify and intensify. And even last year, when Eastern Europe was falling to pieces, very straight people were saying, gee, it seems as though history itself is accelerating. Well... Then there was a lull, so that talk was dropped. But I think history is accelerating, and the next time it accelerates, the talk that this is happening will come around again much louder. And pretty soon, by the turn of the century, I think it's going to be hard to hide from anybody who's paying attention the fact that the entire social evolution of the planet seems to be caught in some kind of evolutionary meltdown that is imminent. You know, and in that environment, uh, psilocybin has a chance. The, the whole drug thing, leave alone psychedelics, the whole drug thing is properly understood as a civil rights issue. 
I mean, people should be able to take whatever drugs they damn well please in the same way that they should be able to express their sexual preferences, in the same way that women should be allowed to vote, uh, people of low incidence of light reflectivity should be treated like everybody else. I mean, all these things which are perfectly obvious. You cannot have a free society and regulate people's drug use. Any society which sets out to call itself free and democratic with the footnote that certain states of mind are forbidden is headed down the slippery slopes of totalitarianism. There ain't no way this can be avoided. So, aside from our belief as a group in the wonderful healing uh, and teaching potential of psychedelics, even if psychedelic drugs didn't exist, I would favor the legalization of all <coughs> drugs because I just think that you cannot treat people as though they were infantile. That's called paternalism. That's the old dominator game. We have to uh, just admit, you know, that we're all in this together and that nobody has cornered the market on the truth, uh, for sure. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, seeing language? Well, this is this, this is to my mind, you know, the 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 pot of gold at the end of the rainbow of the psychedelic experience. These experiences get stronger and stronger and stronger, and then language becomes visible. And then if they become any stronger, you fall asleep. That seems to be about the outer limit of what the, the internal processors can tolerate. Seeing language... You know, it's a mystery, it's a miracle, it's, I don't know what it is, it's the thing which keeps me going with all of this, because it's the idea that we're just on the brink of some kind of transformation of how we communicate with each other that will change not only how we communicate, but who we are. Because see, if, if you could see what I mean, rather than hear me and run to your internal dictionary and look up all my words and then reconstruct my meaning. But if you could just see what I mean, then you and I would be very much like the same person because we would be looking at the same thing. So it's a tremendous... If Obviously, language is what has knitted us together and made us social creatures. I mean, creatures of our body weight and so forth have styles where, you know, the males and the females get together only for sex and once a year, like mountain lions or something like that. So, but obviously the presence of language and our social history as primates set us up for living as we do. And we have managed to create, through language, a monkey troop of five billion people. You know, a monkey troop of five billion individuals united through the glue of language. So it's an intensification. And it's something shamans do. And I think it's, you know, the real, the real social magic of shamanism, at least in the Amazon, is based around these visible communications. Um, I wanted to make a comment about the difference between uh, seeing and uh, hearing. And it's uh, I like the difference between uh, sculpture and music. 
and music and language uh, take place uh, the succession of elements through time, so it requires a duration to understand, but uh, sculpture and uh, seeing things, it's all in a single moment that the, that the uh, at least with sculpture, that the objects beheld in a single moment, you know, the, uh, the aesthetics of an object, a sculptured object, is the relationship of part to part and part to the whole in a single moment. But music is the succession of elements in time. And somehow I think that relates to your... The thing... Yeah. When you talk about seeing language, it's almost like seeing... I remember you were talking about seeing little creatures, mm-hmm. the words being creatures. And so then you're observing these creatures. And they, are they coming out like music... In through time, or can they, or can an idea, a sentence be seen all at once? They're coming out through time, and a sentence can be seen all at once because, in a way, your analogy is not apt because sculpture is static, but these visible statements are like sculpture made of some magical substance which has an internalized program of change. The analogy I always make is to the eggs of Fabergé. These things are like machines, jewels, but you can also tell while you're looking at them that they're statements. They're like, you know how people talk about beautifully crafted sentences? Well, these are beautifully crafted sentences, but they're like exquisite, interlocking, mechanized things made out of ivory and glass and topaz and chrome and just, you know, and they're carrying on at a furious rate. They have a life in time. Uh, I would like to write a computer program to uh, that would be like a full paint type program, but it would be for the purpose of generating these kinds of objects because I've seen them a fair bit and analyzed what's going on and and here's how it works. You have a dodecahedron or some other complex regular polygon so that it's made of surfaces and then to each surface you assign a set of color and frequency changes and then each surface can run its program independent of all the other surfaces. So you slowly build up a program on each surface, but then you can also cut into this polygon and remove chunks of it to reveal another polygon inside it that can have different programs written for each of its surfaces. And then you set these things slowly rotating one within another on several levels, and you're beginning to approach a really shoddy uh, example of what these things are like that you see in this space. Beats me, you know. <laughs> Most of this stuff is repertage. Yeah. Um, I've heard you speak often about these incredibly complex images that you received on psilocybin or DMT. I'm just wondering if you've ever become had an experience of total emptiness or voidness. I mean, the most profound experience I've ever had on psilocybin was actually being void of any content at all, but 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 not being like blanked out or something like that, just being aware of it. Well, I, I think this may have something to do with 
philosophical bent and proclivity. I never got any of these zeni states. I, the white light, the black light. And it's probably in my personality. I really stress visual hallucinations. And people have hassled me about this and said, you know, but psychedelics open your heart, they do this, they do that, and all you ever talk about is visions. It's because, to me, the vision is the proof, and I guess I'm still a skeptic after all these years, the vision is the proof that it's not me. Because if I've never seen it before, hell, I'm willing to grant it's not me if I've never seen it before. How difficult a character do you have to be, you know? So when there's things I've never seen before that are absolutely amazing, streaming past my closed eyelids, I have to grant that it isn't coming from me, and that thin thread can be the basis of a bridge to faith. If it isn't me, then there's something out there. God, the devil, who knows? But at least somebody, now we can begin to have a serious spiritual quest. You know, there is a signal. We're getting a signal from the other, and it can be pursued. But it's the task of a, of a lifetime. Well, now I hear you mention faith, and it seems like yesterday morning you said something along the line of, you know, I'm not a believer in any sense of the word. But what I wanted to ask you is... Uh, in the context of the chemicals in the brain and the pineal gland and so forth, uh, what do you think of fasting as a way of altering consciousness? Fasting, I think, is probably very effective. If you analyze this whole rap here about the early mushrooms and the primates and all that, really what's being said is that diet is the key, that foods are very important. And this is what they're saying about ayahuasca in the Amazon. They say... Half of it is ayahuasca, but the, but the learning of the shamanism and the becoming of this superhuman type of personality is all in the diet. And shamans in the Amazon, when they're trying to establish their credentials with each other, do it by saying how long they kept the diet. Somebody will say, well, I did it for two years or something like that. I just thought of something about the the shamans in the Amazon. You know this magic phlegm that they bring up? Right. What do they do with it? Do they spit it out finally or swallow it back down or what? What do they ultimately do yeah. with it? It's hard to find out stuff like this when you're a guest. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't see where it went. Did you see it? I've seen it. And, um, because if they use this to pull a disease out of somebody or a uh, poison or some kind of illness-causing thing, if it's a ma like a magnet that pulls this out, right. then if they just keep this inside of them, that wouldn't be very safe, I wouldn't think. So I just Well, talking about what it is and judging whether it's safe or not, I mean, what is this phlegm in the first place? I mean, when you're really there, really dealing with it, you're pushed toward ideas like that it's a zone, it's a zone of space-time which repels English. You know, I mean, in other words, it's a magical substance. It comes out of their body. Calling it phlegm is because we're following some anthropologist in the 1920s who, you know, went back to his tent scratching his head and tried to figure out what the nearest analogy to this was. But what they do is they, they 
Also, in some of these tribes, the story goes that they can force this stuff out on the surface of their skin. And I don't know what this is about, but I have had ayahuasca visions where it's like a black field and suddenly there's a huge, huge black hand and I can see in the, in the lines of this hand jewels and it's just there, this black hand. It's like, not your hand. It's not my hand, it's a black hand. Where does it come from? I mean, is it on your hand? No, it's oh, like it's in, in, a, in a vision and then I see in the lines that this, what I thought were jewels is some kind of sweat which is seeping out. And you look deeper into this stuff and you see, you know, that wonderful line from 2001, my God, there are stars in here. And you, you know, it's <laughs> completely disorienting. Well, no, the magic, the magic is real. I have no idea how far you can go. I mean, one of the paradoxes of what we're doing here in this room is, you know, here I sit, I have, Two children, a wife, a mortgage, book contracts, lawyer, all this. Here you sit with whatever you brought to this. And we're talking about this stuff. Uh, if any one of us cared to, we could turn ourselves into something that none of the rest of us could relate to at all. We could become a sage. You know, you could go up onto Cold Mountain and those of us left down in the valley would say, oh yes, I saw him three years ago up in the mist, naked as a jaybird hauling <laughs> firewood out of the woods. These places, there's no barrier between you and these places except your, is that what you want? You know, do you want to become utterly incomprehensible to the community because you are so deep into the unspeakable? Maybe. And that's what a shaman is. A shaman is somebody who's just on the edge. They just have one finger back in the world of the rest of us, and then they're in this stuff. Well, seeking that used to be called the spiritual quest. But as I said to you, you know, we found the means to do that. We found the answer, you know. You just go and live in the wilderness and take mushrooms and, you know, co-hung, move over. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, what to, is, is what to do about that? I don't know. I mean, I really don't know because I'm attracted to it. I want to go as far as I can go. But when you realize that you can go so far that... Nobody will even remember that you ever existed. Uh, the other can close over you so utterly. Well, the, the reason I ask this is because a lot of times they say that you know that uh, gurus and different people take on the karma of the people that they heal or they work with. You know, I, you've probably heard this theory before. And so I wondered when these shamans were healing, if they, if they, if they magnetized out some kind of illness or something, where does that go? Well, they have, yes, they're very concerned about the power of this illness and they have techniques and, and many times after a big curing, a shaman will fall sick. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you want to understand this, read Jung's book called On the Psychology of the Transference. It's the same in all cultures. You must be able to turn back the transference if you're a healer, otherwise you'll be killed ultimately. And all psychiatrists, psychotherapists understand this, or if they don't, they're at great peril. 
did, did anyone happen to see a film called uh, From Beyond? And the, the premise was is that there was a machine that induced uh, visions into the spiritual realm and stimulated the pineal gland. And what happens <laughs> is uh, a couple of people, the inventor and someone else, got hooked on the machine, and the pineal gland started growing out of their, their forehead. Ah, oh, Hollywood. Whole, it, was, it was big on special effects. Oh, and, and, and the one guy, his whole body was just like totally transformed, you know, and, he was always, you know, on this machine and so forth. It reminded me of what your, you know, uh, kind of a electronic uh, version, artificial of way, version of. Uh, yeah, well, there. This is also coming, you know, artificial technologies. Uh, where are we in this process? Yeah. Um, well, I'm quite satisfied with questions at the moment, but I'm um, commenting on that uh, with the, with respect to the pineal gland and visions. Um, you know, the, the pineal gland feeds directly to the, from the ocular nerve with no interceding brain tissue. It's just a direct connection. So the colors that one takes in are directly responsible for the particular secretions of that gland, um, which is one of the reasons why television is described as being difficult on, on people and causes real hormonal problems if you watch it enough because you're dealing with a very restricted spectrum of colors and that sort of thing. Um, the, the additional thought occurred to me that everyone who's watching television at the same time, their nervous system is being pulsed at 30 times a second, mm -hmm. even though they're not conscious of it. But every TV set in the whole United States is exactly in sync with each other, all at 30 times a second. It's like this sub-audible dial tone that's going through everyone's brains, which uh, has kind of an ominous tone to it. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, one, the one comment I wanted to make was uh, having recently read uh, the, a book by Gurdjieff called Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, <coughs> uh, which is about the only book I've ever read that even pertains to the sort of uh, cosmic timescale that Terence talks about enough. And one of the warnings in the beginning of the book was that if you read this with enough attention, that you'll eventually lose the taste for your favorite dessert and the particularly attractive person across the street that you like to watch won't seem nearly so interesting anymore. So be forewarned, you may not want to read this stuff. <laughs> and uh, to a certain extent, I feel that's quite, quite possible. You think the cosmic view kills uh, <laughs> the trivial, the joy of trivia. The joy, the joy of trivia. <laughs> the curse of mysticism. Well, I don't know. It, your thing about television and everybody being in sync, one of the most creative and eccentric explanations ever dreamed up for flying saucers uh, rested on the fact that the guy said... Uh, in the United States, you know, on an average evening, 40 million people are uh, all in sync uh, watching TV. And if there then is a storm on the sun, it acts as a kind of coherent energy beam which illuminates these millions of psyches that are all synchronized by watching television and it causes uh, an image of an archetype to be projected into space on the other side of the planet. <laughs> Not my theory. 
Well, definitely in image processing, when you want to, uh, you know, computer image processing, when you want to draw a very fuzzy sort of pattern, quite often what you do is, is interfere with that, another regular pattern on top of it, and see how these two patterns co-mingle, such right. that you'll get an accentuated thing mm. as a result. And this 30 hertz dial tone is definitely sort of illuminating this other aspect of the imagination, it would seem. Mm -hmm. Maybe. You ought to read A Wrinkle in Time. Did you hear that? No. Read A Wrinkle in Time. It's supposed to be a children's story. It's almost exactly what you just said. Uh -huh. It's a great story. By uh, Madeline Lingle. Read the whole trilogy. It's yeah. great. It's almost exactly what you yeah. said. Back there. Mm. I'm interested in what you, what you feel your relationship is with these, you know, whatever I'm calling beings that come to you. Are you, are we, you know, their offspring somehow, or, you know? Well, I don't know. I mean, this has puzzled me for a long, long time. When, I, when it first happened, I just thought that they were straight-out extraterrestrials and that this was some kind of weird technology where this was, this was a contact between a species that evolved off-planet. And, and then, but... They're like... Uh, they're interdimensional dwellers of some sort. And I, so then I thought, well, maybe they're just hyperspatial creatures of some sort in some other dimension that I can't even imagine. And then I thought, maybe they're actually from the future. It's like maybe this is a future state of humanity, that we're actually going to look like this in 10 million years, and they're doing some kind of weird experiment with time, and I'm the Neanderthal that they're checking out. A and then the other possibility, which I mentioned here, which is really uh, unsettling, but in a lot of ways fills the bill better than any of these, which is their souls of some sort. They're human beings. And when you, when you try that on for size, it's pretty hair-raising because it feels right and yet your mind boggles. I mean, you're not, I am not ready to believe that you can smoke a drug and cross over the Great Divide and return ten minutes later. That's, that really strains my credulity. Nevertheless, if you ask shamans, this is what they would say. I, after having many DMT trips, I came to realize that this place that you break into, where the gnomes greet you with this huge hooray, and all this linguistic machinery is happening and so forth, that alien as that place is, it's somebody's idea of a reassuring environment for a human being. It's somebody's idea of the equivalent of a playpen. And these colored machine linguistic object things are the equivalent of colored rattles and things strung on a string. And you're just sitting there, you know, gaping. And they're saying, don't freak out, pay attention, uh, learn to do this. I don't know, maybe, uh, I mean, 
no, first of all, nothing is impossible. No, no possible speculation is verboten, right? So maybe it is that we've gone too far. And maybe it is that this planet is doomed. And maybe it is that somehow that too is part of the plan. Borges had this idea. He said that he believed in what he called the soul of the species. And he said the soul of the species is not released into the higher dimensions until the last individual member of the species dies. As long as there is a single member of the species alive, the soul of the species is somehow in some kind of transient, transient zone. But when the last member of a species died, then it goes off. Well, if you look at the fossil record, 95% of all the species that have ever lived on the earth are extinct. From that point of view, it looks as though biology is a, a uh, process for producing extinction. Well, then what is it? Is it that in the world of three-dimensional space and time and matter and energy, the DNA rears a form which inhabits uh, a region of time and space called the body? And then at a certain point, this, hyper, this form withdraws into something. And what the matter that it had previously organized just falls to pieces. I don't know, but the, the entities in the DMT place are a real challenge. They either are the dead, extraterrestrials, or interdimensional dwellers. Any one of these is a headline in the supermarket checkout log, <laughs> and I assure you. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what I want to ask you, but I did recently have a dream that we were all linked together. And it seemed like you had the same experience on mushroom feeling that. <coughs> to know if you have anything else to say about that in relationship to affecting others. Or, I mean, you are in... Well, I think that, you know, the link that we cannot evolve, we can't change the world any faster than we can change the language we use to talk about it. And changing language is a collective activity. You empower memes. I talked about this. I mean, you create a concept and then you empower it by spreading it and by communicating it clearly enough that in the act of spreading it, it doesn't get badly copied and get all mushed up, you know, so that after it's been copied ten times, you can't recognize it. I mean, I sometimes have this experience. People quote me to myself, and I'm just amazed, you know. And sometimes it turns out it's verbatim, and I'm still amazed. But uh, the linking together is through the evolution of language, and we've never, ever attempted to engineer language we've always let it just grow like topsy, not realizing that certain language habits are very toxic. Certain language patterns give permission for very detrimental ways of thinking. I mean, for instance, the subject-object relationship in English or 
the uh, assignment of gender to things and that goes on in a lot of languages. These are habits of language that then become tremendous uh, uh, social problems for their inheritors. The use of the word it. It's raining. Yes, it's or, or... What is funny. <laughs> or the I. You know, I mean, there are languages where there is no first-person pronoun. The only way you can refer to yourself is by the extremely clumsy form, this person. This person thinks, yak, yak. Yeah. yeah. I was uh, curious, you've mentioned DMT and visions of, uh, I think you said dodecahedrons and things like that. And then you mentioned... Uh, they're saying to you to kind of stay with it and just hang in there. I'm kind of curious about this dialogue of DMT and the logos in psilocybin. I mean, do they sound the same? Are they? Is it? You know, how do you know that it's just not your own Howard Cosell comment commenting in the back of your mind? Is there? How do you know it isn't yeah, your yeah. own mind? Yeah, and, and is there a way to break through to, to begin a dialogue, or does it just start going like a tape loop? No, it doesn't start going. You have to invoke it. This is an interesting thing if you're practically inclined. You can, it won't speak to you. You have to speak to it. And you come into a certain place on the mushroom, which I now, based on having done it a number of times, <coughs> recognize the territory and say, aha, it's now possible to communicate with the thing. And then I... Well, <laughs> you must know the old I Love Lucy episode where they do the thing about, come in, little green men, come in, little green men. <laughs> Ethel and Lucy are into this. <laughs> well, I tried that, and, you know, you hear this thing which sounds like the tinkling of bells, the distant tinkling of bells. And what it is, is it's literally, it's the elf troop, or the elf troop marching band and chowder society. <laughs> and, and you can hear them getting nearer and nearer. And it's like... And it gets louder and louder. And at a certain point, you begin not to, see, to hear it, but to see it. And it gets brighter and brighter and clearer and clearer. And finally, they're all around you and jumping up and down and saying, you know, how do you like it, McKinney? And all this <laughs> other stuff that they say. And, you know, they are, they're, they're gnomes. I mean, you couldn't miss it. Uh, I mean, and I'm still me, of course. I'm still just as I would be sitting here. And... It's so hard to assimilate. That's why I say, you know, sitting here in a room talking about this stuff is nothing as to being out there signing treaties with the folks. <laughs> it's... That's, that to me is what may be part of following up a little bit on the question. That, uh, when you say logos, is this the machine elves? Are they the logos? Gonna, no. Parents, we have something... No, the logos is something a little subtler that is a that's actually stuck with me ever since La Chirera. It's just a quality of thinking that I recognize to be clearer and deeper than my own. And it usually takes the form of why don't you try this with regard to some problem? 
why don't you try this? And I know immediately it'll work. It's got the tone. That's the real thing. I, I just go and do it, and it always works. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's these, you know, evolved ideas. Okay, so I can understand that, you know, this, that's your subjective experience, and some people don't get the machinels and things like that that I talked to, but you mentioned the, the mark of this was terror. So, I mean, I can already realize that being in that domain is enough of a terror in itself, but you said the mark of, uh, or the proof of this was uh, the trip, some of these trips were terrorizing for you, but I'm trying to understand... There must be something else going on that's enabling you to feel terror or... It's the implications are what's terrifying. Because you know that amazing moment in Rosemary's Baby where she's in the dream and then she sits up and she says, my God, this is really happening. Well, that happens to you in in the DMT thing. You realize at the center of it, this is not a drug. That's preposterous. The drug? Are you kidding me? Drugs make you feel good or bad or fall down or disgrace yourself. This is not a drug. It's something masquerading as a drug. I mean, it's as appalling as if they were about to give you the umbilical examination that Whitley Strieber specializes in. I mean, you're inside a flying saucer. You're with things that in a moment before you would have laughed at the possibility that they even existed and now you're there and you feel completely normal. You don't feel drugged or dulled or distanced or high or low. You just feel stoned, amazed at what has happened to reality and how it's all been replaced by this thing that not only did you never suspect its existence, but Nobody ever suspected its existence. You talk about a well-kept secret that's only two tokes away. How do they keep the lid on this? That's the miracle to me. How do they keep the lid on this? Well, they have. Well, I'm not sure what my question is, but in the experience last night with um, the computer time program, that was real exciting to me. uh, it, it kind of made me almost have the experience of traveling through time and having that awareness of history and wondering now now that you brought that out and we have the awareness how, what do we really use it for? I mean, what is your vision for how it can truly be, be used? And If you understand history you will see it in the present. It's a It's an amazing tool for enriching your own experience. If you, you, when you go to get a hamburger at Hadrian's Hamburger Joint, know that this is happening because you're caught in a resonance related to the expeditions of the Roman Emperor Hadrian to Mm -hmm. Scotland, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're totally schizophrenic, of course, (laughs) to entertain thoughts like this, but it makes life uh, a lot more interesting. You, instead of seeing a linear thing with a fading past and, a, and an unpredictable future, you live in a super rich kind of baklava style of time where time is folded and folded and folded and the layers are very thin and the stuff between is very sweet. Mm. Well, how have you used that personally in your life? <coughs> 
Well, the other way you use it is, of course, it predicts the future. We saw the line going off into the future. Well, I've had it in my possession since 1972. So after you've watched it correctly predict the future for a while, months or years, however long it takes, you gain confidence in it. And as you gain confidence in it, you discover that it gives you permission to let go of anxiety about the future. You've got a map of the future. You know that August 91 is going to be a pain in the ass. You know that great triumph will come to you in January of 93, so why worry about it? You, know, you just then go and live your life, and, and as you watch the wave unfold, confidence grows and grows and grows, and, and what's happening, you see, is without any fanfare or, uh, you know, alien symbiosis, you're becoming a hyperspatial person. You're adding a dimension to your view of the world. The future is changing from a question mark into a map that you're quite confident is working for you. And anxiety about the future is a major thing twisting people around. So if you could get agreement on this, it's the, it's the Tao, you know. Live in the perception of the Tao, it's just people didn't ever think that would mean you'd go and look at a printed output from a computer. But the exhortation is the same. Live according to the constraints of the Tao. Game boss are the same. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed this weekend. Um, it has really given me much food for thought, eons and eons of years from now even. And um, I'm very interested in in um, how you what the best uh, setup is for taking the mushrooms, um, the amount and time of day, uh, condition. Whatever, I think there must be, in your experience, I'm sure you've tried all of them, um, there must be a, a one way that is perhaps lends itself better to the mushroom than others. How to get into the trip. Yes. Well, yes, I haven't said it this weekend, but it's practically a battle cry of mine. It's five grams in silent darkness on an empty stomach. And I'll explain it, you know, five grams... Now, when you, you must weigh it, a lot of people take mushrooms, and when you show them what five grams is, they pale visibly. <laughs> because, yeah, five dried grams. And it's, you know, several mouthfuls. So, and I'm speaking for a 145-pound person. Obviously, if you weigh 90 pounds, you back it up a little. And if you weigh 230, you might go a little up. But uh, five dried grams on an empty stomach, all that means is don't eat for six hours. Silent darkness. Silent. And I, a lot of people disagree with me about this, and they want to listen to the moody blues, and they want Bach, and they want this. <laughs> Forget it. You, nobody's going to listen to you if you come out of this experience saying Johann Sebastian Bach is God. We know that. <laughs> so... You know, and it's very confusing because the music becomes everything if you listen to it. I mean, you cannot separate it from the trip, and people will not believe that the trip without music will be just as rich as the trip with music because they're they've already decided they're inadequate, 
that out of their own depths they couldn't possibly produce a psychedelic experience. So let's have the B minor mass thrown in just to help it along a little here. Uh, so silence, silent darkness, and then darkness. Why darkness? Because the hallucinations actually need darkness in order to form. They form behind closed eyelids. And so what I do is, and this, I clear the decks, and I try to pick a point in my life when I don't feel too anxious and oppressed by trivia. I unplug all the phones. I get rid of every obligation. I roll up three or four bombers. And I then wait on an empty stomach. And about nine o'clock at night, I take it. And I just sit, as I'm sitting now, waiting for it to come on. Once I've taken it, I am completely in the sacral space, even though I don't feel anything for an hour and 20 minutes. Some people do the ironing and, you know, chop up some stock or something. But I just sit. And then it begins to come on. Some people say it comes on very quickly and so forth and so on. For me, it usually doesn't really come on until the hour and 20 minute mark. There may be a surge of nausea at 40 minutes or a need to take a leak or something like that. But then I get back and resettle. And at an hour and 20 minutes, it comes. And it comes as a wave. It's literally, it's almost like a, a very sheer silk scarf just drops over me, just settles over, and I think, oh my God, here it comes, here it comes. And then it, it comes, and it's, a, it's a, a wave of hallucination. And if, if I, well, I gauge it, but at that point I smoke. And something about the cannabis synergy meeting the psilocybin, I mean, it is spectacular. I mean, you think that everybody from Vancouver to Tijuana must have just thrown themselves on the ground as this thing... I mean, it feels like the sun exploded. It feels like you're watching through 11 feet of quartz crystal a hydrogen furnace on the other side. You cannot believe the release of energy. It's like a siren comes on, a siren which you hear and feel, a siren which shakes your body and the building that you're in and everything else. And then it just, you know, pushes you out into, who knows, long periods of time where not a word of it will ever be reported to any other human being. I mean, you see things that nobody has ever seen and will ever see again. You're into it, you know, and, and it's an infinite matrix uh, in all directions, and it means something. It doesn't just look pretty, you know, it's playing on the harp of your soul with the emotional overtones. Yeah. Have you ever taken it and gone outside? Yes, and um, um, I don't do that very much because I really try to control uh, the setting because the freakiest things happen. I mean, if you in any way lift your foot off the pedal of controlling the parameters of the setting, the damnedest things will happen. I mean, grizzly bears will break into your house. Uh, motorcycle gangs will arrive. Foxers will attack. It's weird to go outside. Do you eat the mushrooms or just drink the tea? No, I eat the mushrooms. 
you have eye shade on? Did you say? No, I just sit in in, si- in darkness, but I really pursue total darkness. I mean, I won't. You know. What specific species of mushroom is the best? Are there several different species? There are many species, but the only one you'll ever encounter unless you're a specialist is Stropharia cubensis. That's the one that people grow and that is an item of underground commerce. And and it's the one that grows in the dung of the white cows and is the one that I'm implicating in the evolution of uh, a human being. Over here. Just back to language for a minute. Um, I don't really have a question, just reiterate a couple of things I said yesterday. Um, of you. Um, I'm trying to break into my own computer and stop habitual behavior um, a long way ago. Um, starting with language, um, just picking the phrases or words that you use the most when you're lazy. It could be profanity or outrageous, amazing, very interesting. Awesome. Awesome. There's a long, long list. Well, those are all cop-outs, I think. Uh, and if you can stop yourself at that moment and say, wait a minute, no, that's, you know, that's not really expressing an articulate thought, um, I think it sends a message. It does break into the computer and says things are changing. You know. Yeah, paying attention. You know, I think we said in here at some point that the key to everything is paying attention. Uh, awareness of awareness, the Buddhists call it. But your point is very good. If you truly have awareness of awareness, the best place to manifest that is in, I guess the Buddhists call it, right speech, yes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that it's always Mm -hmm. appropriate Mm -hmm. and sufficient and, and so forth. There's a book that some of you may know and you might be interested if you don't know it. It's called Hallucinogens and Shamanism. It's edited by Michael Harner, but it has articles by a number of people. And it has really one of the most wonderful articles ever written about the mushrooms by Henry Munn called The Mushrooms of Language. And he talks about how they are an inspiration to articulation how even in these Mazatec villages when people are not taking mushrooms, the way you can tell a shaman is by a a speech style. And I saw this in the Amazon with the ayahuasqueros. They have a a diction, a psychedelic diction that is careful, appropriate, always sensitive to the context of the listener, and so forth and so on. In other words, they are great teachers, educators, communicators, and I think it's the residual effect of this empowerment of, of speech. What was the name of the book? Pardon me? What was the name of the book? Hallucinogens and Shamanism by Michael Harner. It's in paperback from Oxford University it's, it's Press. The, is it in the, No, it's not in the book. It's an excellent anthology. It has articles about ayahuasca, about ibogaine, uh, San Pedro. It's a good world survey of folk usage of hallucinogenic plants and extensive bibliographies that will lead you on if you're interested in some particular area. How long does your five-grain trip last night? If I take it around 8.30 at night, by midnight, I'm ready to call it an evening. I always eat before I sleep, because otherwise you'll wake up in the morning feeling really wasted and sort of hollow. But if you'll eat something fairly substantial right before you sleep at one in the morning, then you wake up the next morning 
<coughs> feel great. Any difficulty getting to sleep? Oh, well, your mind is just roiling with thoughts. But on the other hand, you've come so far down from where you were an hour, an hour and a half before. That's when you smoke the third bomber. And <laughs> that usually shoves you into unconsciousness. <laughs> There, one of the things, there have been many revolutions in geology and paleontology, such as plate tectonics and the original discovery of deep time. I mean, 150 years ago, you could consider yourself an intellectual and believe that the Earth was 5,000 years old. The discovery of deep time made uh, uh, a real difference. Then plate tectonics created a whole new vision. Well, now the latest wrinkle is the growing awareness that repeatedly in the life of the earth objects have come down that have just raised holy hell. I mean, this thing that came down 65 million years ago, you can't even conceive. I mean, it's like... Pardon me? The 1904 Siberian? The Tunguska explosion, but that was a very small object. This thing which came down 65 million years ago uh, they estimate that a wall of earth three miles high moved out at three times the speed of sound from the impacts. And can you imagine a mile-high wall of, of stone moving at twice the speed of sound? I mean, it's the kind of thing that tears planets to pieces. And it's happened before. It happened 220 million years ago. And then when you get back, way back... There's a scar on the Canadian shield that's 750 miles across. It's as large as Copernicus on the surface of the moon. Uh, 50,000 years ago, something fell in Arizona that created a crater half a mile wide. They estimate that everything within 800 miles of the epicenter died instantly. And that was only 50,000 years ago. So, uh, the... the uh, the Earth is a chaotic place. It's all very provisional. Uh, Where did you uh, get that information of, this, of the, what you just described? Describing the explosion? The explosions, uh, 50,000... You mean all the years. dates and all that? Yeah, I mean, is that... The, you subscribe to some... Uh, oh, my <laughs> secret sources? <laughs> as, as well as the glaciation. I mean, you're talking about times that... But I've never read any of this in any books anywhere that I've seen. Well, I've, I've discovered that um, there's a uh, hierarchy of information in the United States and that, all the, the, that you get it from journals. It's all in journals. I subscribe to science news, to astronomy, to archaeology, to Scientific American, and, and those are just the science, and then I get all the other stuff too as well. No, science is in total crisis. Cosmology. I mean, did you know that that they are seeing structure in the universe on scales so large that they are, no laws of physics can account for it? I mean, the galaxies are arranged like trees in an apple orchard out to recessional distances three-quarters the life of the, of the universe. There's obviously a great deal that we don't know. Did you know that, uh, that Alpha Centauri, which is 4.5 light years away, is the most sun-like star in 50 light years? 
nice coincidence, isn't it, that the nearest star to the Earth is the most Earth-like star for quite, quite a distance. It is a binary, but it's loosely bound. There could be a stable planetary system there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've been coming here since 74, Esther, and this is the first one that is about the meaning of life. Uh, and then also, all my workshops, <laughs> all my workshops I've been like concerned with my own growth and enjoying my life and expressing my feelings. And this workshop, I really have not gotten into my heart or anything, but it's really interesting. I'm aware I've kind of been lopsided in the other direction. So this has kind of been a big influence on me. It's really got my curiosity going. And then also, I'm aware that I, would, I don't want to go to Harvard, I want to go to University of Iwasco. <laughs> <laughs> question, I have two questions. One, how do you apply? Uh, better yet, how do, you, how do I get some Iwasco to partake of? And then the second question is, I've taken ecstasy a number of times and it's been wonderful. What are, what's bad about ecstasy for the body as a whole and so forth? I don't know much about it and I would like to know... Well, there's a lot of ecstasy, you all know, is MDMA. There's a lot of... Con- Which is what? MDMA. Is it a speed? Is it kind of a speed? Well, it was made out... Uh, it's in the same family as MDA. So it's a kind of cyclicized amphetamine. But it was used very successfully in directed psychotherapy to get people to talk about their feelings and that sort of thing. And then there became... There was sort of a scare about it because it became known that you could physically see neural damage in the brains of uh, rats that had taken it. And, uh, but then it was discovered that a drug called finfluramine, which is a diet drug that has existed for 25 years and is freely prescribed by physicians, causes exactly the same kind of signature uh, of neurodamage as the MDMA. Well, fenfluramine, nobody's ever suggested it should be banned. So the decision has been made to just keep looking at this. There's no doubt that it shows gross structural deformation of synaptic tissue, but on the other hand, no behavioral sequelae have been demonstrated for this. In other words, the rat doesn't stagger or isn't aggressive or anything, but it has this. So my advice on MDMA would be basically to go slow and wait. They are working on it. This is my brother's... Well, he's left Stanford now, but this is what he was doing at Steve Perutka's lab. And... uh, Hi. um Last fall when I was here, I had the opportunity to watch some of the video tapes of your residence last year, and that excited me a lot. So I did some inquiring and found a person who would um, guide me through uh, a McKenna-style mushroom experience. And I did that once. It was the first time in my life I'd ever done anything like that. And um, it was a major experience for me, and I'm curious now and frightened by that experience, my, my recollection of that experience. And I suspect that's part of the reason why I'm back this weekend is because it's coming up for me again. And I guess if I have a question, it's sort of along the lines of, do you suspect that because of whatever the control issues or my anxiety going into it, that that gave 
that particular experience a specific flavor which is not likely to be duplicated again? Or Well, not exactly, but it is true, and it's reassuring, I hope, to you to know this, that the first... It's like sex. The first time can be anything, and no judgments can be made based on the first time, because you're just figuring it out. Also, repeated studies have shown that the first time there is personal material, usually, that has to be released, that we do carry traumatic and repressed material. And, uh, and the first trip and the second trip sometimes is about working through this. But eventually you get to this part of the trip which isn't about you. And most of us are not very screwed up. I mean, you just blow your tubes out and then you're all right and uh, it's okay from then on. Uh, There's no way of getting around it that the first-timer has an advantage on everybody else because they don't know what they're getting into. Uh, It makes me very anxious to do it. And I say in my talks... If, you are, if it doesn't make you anxious to do it, increase the dose until it does. <laughs> because it's the ego that needs to be dissolved. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, not, it, it's no good to go through an ambiguous trip. You really want to get it to happen. But for, for men especially, and certainly for me, it's a surrender issue. You know, my, you just think, oh God, to submit to it again, you know, to have it totally take me out of control, to have it be totally in charge. And then, you know, you just have to take the plunge. And, and I always, Leo ha- used to have a prayer, which I can't do the prayer, but I got the idea. And the basic idea is, here I am, I trusted you enough to do this. Please don't hurt me. <laughs> you know? I mean, you, you have to humble yourself. I mean, I know people who are very... Well, I'm thinking of a certain person who's a very strong, masculine, ego-type, pushy, talks too loud, has made a lot of money, is used to being taken seriously. And God, when this guy took mushrooms, he absolutely hated it. And because it told him, it said, you know, you're a jerk and I'm going to make you feel it. And he hated it. And yet, and he was telling me the story as though I should say to him, lucky for you, you escaped from the claws of this vicious mushroom. And I was, of course, thinking to myself, my God, it's exactly what this guy needed to hear. It's amazing. But the surrender thing is an issue, and it doesn't get easier, I think. And I've talked to shamans in the Amazon about this, and they say, you think this stuff is easy for us to do? You think just because I run around with a penis sheath on my ding-dong that this is any weirder for, any less weird for me than for you? It isn't. It isn't. It says, if you're a human being, this is a tough swallow. 
And yet we do it because we need to cure and we need to understand. But you must be strong. You must have your weapons, your whatever your weapons are, you know, your inner fortitude, your your chi, your sensak, all of this. So it's a call to courage. This is why I think that gurus do such a brisk business, even among people who know about psychedelics. Because this takes courage. How many people ever walked to the meditation hall with their knees knocking in fear <laughs> over what was going to happen in their meditation? But, you know, this, this is the, the thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, shit, i got to sit down with my mind again. But that was after psychedelics. This is very useful information. Yeah, this is good stuff. Well, yeah. you know, I, I came to this uh, workshop on Friday and I said that um, the old vision wells were completely dry and I feel like I've come to the well and I'm really refreshed. And um, who would think that, you know, the Buddha of the new century would be a psychedelic guru, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and yet, I I'm, I realize, I've, I've grown up in India, I'm Indian, and... Um, I realized, um, and you know, I was heavy into hash and opium and things like that, and doing a lot of uh, experimentation with that stuff. And I, I, I realized this weekend I came to the West because I wanted to partake of the psychoactive juices, you know. <laughs> and it's, been, it's been nine years, and uh, I've sort of skirted around it, you know. It's like, uh, oh yeah, you know, drop some acid and you know, some mescaline and you know, peyote button here and there, but it's never been, you know the way you described it. Full on. Yeah, full blown. And and, um, and, and the, the conflict I have is along the realms of, you know, psychedelic uh, experiences leading to a fully cerebral virtual reality kind of a situation and does that make the body obsolete? And the fact that, you know, more recently I've been focusing on in my meditations and uh, yogas and stuff on you know the brain studying the brain and you know boy how do I how do I get there and and I have this intuition that it, I need to be put into a situation of danger just like you were talking a couple of minutes ago um, of being you know faced with the stark whatever it is and sort of like just coolly casually hoping to stumble onto it is, is not is not the the goods. So it's the conflict of, you know, where does the body come into this? Um. This is this choice that I talked about, about, you know, we can't be both high-tech and nature children. Are we going to download half of us into a black box that will be kept on the moon? Uh, This kind of thing. Is the body becoming obsolete? Does living in the imagination mean the obsolescence of the body? And how much of what we are is in the body? I mean, we know that theories have ranged from all to none, but it would be a good idea to get this a little nailed down uh, before we go much further with this. You know that mushrooms are forbidden to Brahmins by the Mahabharata, but these Santali people have hundreds of words for mushrooms in their language, and a complete... There's some suggestion that they may have connections back to 
rituals and traditions that are pretty much uh, unchanged from Vedic times. And they have a mushroom that they're very big on. It isn't a psychoactive mushroom, but they venerate it and they hold a festival for it and nobody knows quite why. And I've always been interested in, uh, in going to India and looking into this because the question of Soma in India relates very much to the presence or absence of uh, Stropharia cubensis. Where, how, how, can you describe it all, your own settling in, or what, how is this progressing? What, what's the, what's the ongoing learning or, or, or seeing or whatever, however you want to put this into words, with the continuation of this study? Well, uh, it's interesting to me that the ayahuasca has begun to appear from many sources. It's not just one group. There are several groups who are bringing ayahuasca to this country and and holding sessions with it. Now, for some reason, the Amazon is becoming the focus of both our problems and our potential solutions to our problems. The Amazon is where all the cocaine is coming from. The Amazon is where the ayahuasca is coming from. And the Amazon is the place where the issue of the clearing of the rainforest and the destruction of the vegetation cover is most intense. So it's almost as though the rainforest itself is sending the ayahuasca. And the message of the ayahuasca is different from the mushrooms. The mushrooms have this science fiction, let's depart for the stars kind of thing. And the ayahuasca has its feet in the mud and says, you know, life, children, balance, affirmation. So I I don't know if this addresses your question. Uh, I'm amazed at what's happening uh, to me and to this issue. The mushroom said many years ago, just keep saying what you're saying and I will clear the way. And it seems to be clearing the way and I just keep saying what I'm saying. But w- what this is all for, you know, I haven't gotten any new orders for a while. I assume that it's a struggle for the soul of this species and then maybe everything is tied up in that. But these chemicals, these plant hallucinogens, are pheromones laden with messages for humanity. But you have to pick up the telephone. You know, It's telling us how to do it. And I don't mean some airy-fairy trip like love one another. I mean it's supplying technical data on how to uh, manage ourselves out of this mess with things like the time wave. And, uh, you know, I don't want to name names because they prefer their privacy, but I know of a number of major ideas moving around on the intellectual landscape whose inventors entirely credit them to psychedelics. These ideas are there because the planetary soul is seeding them. And it's up to us to cultivate, cultivate our intuition, our social relationships, our sensitivity, and our sense of decency, you know, so that nobody puts anything over on us. 
And I think the world is growing more psychedelic every day. I'm completely hopeful. The trends I look for, the, the indicators I watch, are all moving in the right direction. This is how it should be. This is what it's like when a species prepares to depart for hyperspace. Nothing's wrong. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. Maybe those are two words that we need to keep reciting to ourselves uh, over and over these days. It's so easy with all of the terrible news we hear and read to become despondent and feel hopeless about the future of our species. But on the other hand, what Terence just said about the world becoming more psychedelic is, uh, I think, measurably true. When I first became involved in the psychedelic community, I only knew a handful of others who were also interested in exploring the upper reaches of consciousness. And even ten years after that, uh, having moved to a new state, I still knew only four other people in that area who were so inclined. For the first year of these podcasts, in fact, from the salon, we were uh, only averaging around 100 downloads a month and uh, from three or four countries. But now, uh, only eight years later, we have uh, reached around a million people in over 150 countries. Uh, through contacts that I've made as a result of these podcasts, I've become aware of the fact that there, there now must be millions and millions of us uh, psychedelically inclined people here on Earth. And what good is it, you ask, if psychedelic consciousness continues to grow? Well, uh, I can't really say for sure. All that I can say for sure is uh, what happened to me as I became more involved with the study of psychedelic medicines. And what happened, over time, is that before I began an active exploration of my own consciousness, I was uh, considered an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer. Today, uh, the only one of those labels that applies to me is that uh, I retain my Irish roots. <laughs> I'm still Irish, but the other three have faded away. And uh, since we're tying up loose ends here, uh, I guess that I should also point out that on two occasions I have kissed the Blarney Stone, so please don't take what I say too seriously. <laughs> well, uh, getting back to the talk that we just listened to, Terence uh, certainly did tie up a lot of loose ends. Of course, uh, many more still remain, but never fear, there are still more recordings of his lectures that I've been sent. Uh, but I haven't uh, had a chance to hear yet myself. So there's still more McKenna coming soon, and uh, once again I feel obliged to point out how coherent and detailed his answers were to such a wide range of questions. Uh, he was truly a remarkable person. In fact, I've got to go back and re-listen to one remark that he made about finding structures in the universe on scales so large that scientists haven't been able to account for them. And the reason why uh, I want to go back and re-listen to that is that in today's edition of Physics World, physicsworld.com, there's a story that has the headline, Quasar Shines a Bright Light on Cosmic Web. And uh, here's the beginning of that story, and I quote, The first view of part of a filament of the cosmic web might have been glimpsed by astronomers thanks to a quasar acting like a torch to illuminate the gas. The observations, made by an international team of researchers, could be the first evidence of the long-predicted large-scale structure of matter in our universe. 
a network of filaments thought to connect all matter, including galaxies and gas clouds, end quote. Now, I don't know about you, but my guess is that this is precisely what Terence was talking about almost 25 years ago. I'll link to that article in the program notes for uh, today's podcast in case you want to check that out on your own. And as you know, you can uh, get to the program notes via psychedelicsalon.us. Now, for the synchronicity watchers among us, besides the coincidence of stumbling on a talk in which Terence mentions the cosmic web, the superstructure of the cosmos, and that news of actually seeing it coming in the same week, well, uh, do you remember the part where Terence was talking about writing a computer program to generate the objects that he saw in psychedelic space? Actually, I'll just uh, play it for you right now to remind you. I would like to write a computer program to, uh, that would be like a full paint type program, but it would be for the purpose of generating these kinds of objects because I've seen them a fair bit and analyzed what's going on and, and here's how it works. You have a dodecahedron or some other complex regular polygon so that it's made of surfaces. And then to each surface you assign a set of color and frequency changes. And then each surface can run its program independent of all the other surfaces. So you slowly build up a program on each surface. But then you can also cut into this polygon and remove chunks of it to reveal another polygon inside it that can have different programs written for each of its surfaces. And then you set these things slowly rotating one within another on several levels, and you're beginning to approach a really shoddy uh, example of what these things are like that you see in this space. So I took that soundbite and sent it to Ken Adams, who, as you know, is the uh, creator of the new Terrence McKenna Experience video, which I'll also link to in the program notes. Anyway, what uh, Terrence said reminded me of Ken's work. So I sent him the soundbite that we just listened to, and Ken wrote back and said that the afternoon that he received the email attachment with the uh, soundbite in it, at that very time that I sent it, he and another video producer were working out a way to do exactly what Terence was talking about. I really like it when uh, little things like that happen. <laughs> and uh, by the way, if uh, any of the video artists here in the salon create something along the lines of what Terence was talking about, just send me a link and uh, I'll link to it from the salon's blog. Now, uh, once again, I'm going to save the rest of my comments for the next podcast because uh, even though I've got some stuff I want to pass along, well, there's this good book waiting for me right now, and I'm right at a crucial point in the story. <laughs> so please forgive me, uh, once again, this early exit from the salon. But to make up for it, I'll see if I can't uh, come up with another uh, McKenna talk for the next podcast. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>